Yep. So uh, tonight we're coming to another concept in the book of Genesis that might be new to you. And believe it or not, after all these years of uh, studying the Old Testament and uh, the book of Genesis, you know, several times over, I still run across things that I think are actually quite illuminating in terms of, I never thought of it in that way. I never saw that angle. And um, <clears throat> tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some things that I heard on a podcast, uh, The Bible for Normal People. Peter Enns is talking a little bit about a different way of reading Genesis. Now, sometimes we read the book of Genesis simply as stories, and most of the time we look for some type of moral lesson uh, that comes from it. Um, this here is a way of trying to understand how all the different components in the book of Genesis fit together. And of course, we've already talked about the 10 sections of the book of Genesis, the Tola Dotes, this is the uh, account of, or these are the descendants of. But this takes another angle and um, it might take a while for us to uh, contemplate this because this might be a new way of looking at the book. And it's not that the stories that we read in Genesis are not important or that uh, they don't give to us some type of moral compass. It's just that now looking at what's in the book of Genesis makes some sense as to why it's there or maybe why it's written the way it's written. So what you'll find is in the handout that I sent out to you, you will find a website uh, that you can go to if you want to listen to the podcast. I'm just kind of summarizing some things as well as giving some additional uh, things that I've looked at this past week. So here's a different way of reading Genesis. And anytime you might have a question or you might be confused, uh, just break in and ask because that's the only way we really learn. So most of the time we read Genesis either like a storybook uh, with all of the characters that are there or a book of history. Um, we've already talked about that it's not a book of science, but I wonder if we have thought deeply about the fact that it is a book of Israel's self-identity as a nation. Uh, it starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, which are the patriarchs of this newly formed nation. And Genesis, in many ways, is a story that leads into Exodus, where a group of slave people become uh, a small nation, first a tribal nomadic group of tribes that are traveling toward a specific land. And when they finally get into the land, they have uh, a portion of that land divided up and the 12 tribes have territory all around uh, the west side of uh, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, although a couple of the tribes have some territory on the east side of it. So maybe the big question of Genesis where we don't know why that story is there, fits into this self-identity as a nation. And maybe that will help us answer these two questions. What is the purpose 
for which the book of Genesis is written. And what is it trying to do? And the way this is summarized is uh, in this podcast, Peter Enns gives to us seven things to consider about Israel's self-identity as a nation. And maybe what the book of Genesis is trying to do with some of this material is to justify, in some respects, the political developments of the 10th century. Now, that's assuming that the book of Genesis is written later. In other words, it's something that's happening just before the exile, during the exile, and back from the exile. So you'll see at the bottom of this slide that the book of Genesis was written during the time of the monarchy and therefore reflects some of the history that's there. Well, the monarchy stretches from 1000 BCE all the way to when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, which was in 586 BCE. Um, They finally come back into the land around 539 BCE. And maybe what the book of Genesis is trying to do is reestablish some of the things that they enjoyed under uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, uh, Saul wasn't the best king. David seems to be the Camelot of the group, and Solomon begins well, but kind of gets off track. Nonetheless, they have a united monarchy. All 12 tribes are together as one nation during this period of time under their rule. Um, Later, they will divide because of taxes, of course, and uh, they will split into two nations, 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. Interestingly enough, the 10 tribes to the north are called Israel, but the two tribes to the south will be called Judah. And of course, Judah is one tribe of the 12. So I just want to remind you of what this looks like here, the geographical setting uh, of the ancient Near East uh, is reflected in the fact that uh, being carted off from Uh, Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon is about 900 to 1,000 miles away. And uh, as they are there almost 70 years, there's only a remnant that will come back. But what are they coming back to? Well, they're coming back to a city that has been decimated. They're coming back to a, a capital city that no longer has a temple. And so they have to rebuild that and they have to rebuild the walls around the city. Uh, A lot of this is reflected in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But what you find is that um, this now becomes the question, how are we going to be ruled? Uh, When we get back to the land, um, what's going to be our political structure? And it will take them a while to kind of reorganize. But one of the things that Genesis might be doing is trying to reestablish the importance of the Davidic line. And so uh, I sent out an article to you in your email just about half hour ago uh, that's entitled Reading David in Genesis. And it's 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 a good read. It really is. Uh, so if you have time to read it, you can, you know, you can take a look at that. So, um, so um, I want you to think about before we dive into a few things about reading Genesis uh, in a different way, 
is I want you to think about the Old Testament as a whole for a moment. So there are 39 books in our Old Testament, but 29 of them in some way or another deal with the whole issue of the land of Canaan. First securing it when they are delivered out of slavery, setting up a, a monarchy, uh, then the split of the nations, finally being exiled from the land, going into Babylon. The 10 tribes actually go into Assyria, but the two Southern tribes go to Babylon. And then the whole drama of returning back to the land and trying to rebuild. 29 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are focused on that. And that's what a lot of the uh, prophets are about. Really, when you think about it, it's the poetical books like uh, Job and Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are complementary type of literary pieces uh, for the nation, but the rest of the prophets and certainly the historical books that lead up to it um, give to us a backstory of this group of people and uh, their struggle to be a nation that was promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. So there's something going on that's much deeper in the book of Genesis than simply Sunday school stories. And it, I think it has something to do with trying to justify Judah's place uh, among the tribes as being the chosen tribe and the Davidic dynasty being the royal uh, uh, choice uh, to continue to lead the nation even after they come back from exile. Of course, you project that all the way into the New Testament, and Jesus is said to be from a lion from the tribe of Judah. So again, even Judah's kind of a central focus on into the New Testament as well. So that kind of gets us into um, introduction to what we're going to talk about in a few moments. You have any questions or comments uh, before we go to the next slide? So in your notes, I mentioned something when one thing pictures another, and I'm giving you two, two illustrations here. You might be familiar with one or both or neither of them, I don't know. But it is when an author uses the technique of saying something uh, using something else. And usually there's some very subtle symbolism in it. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, the 1953 play called The Crucible. Um, it's written by Arthur Miller and here's kind of the gist of it. Um, it is actually using the Salem witch trials as the storyline, but the uh, Salem witch trials are actually an allegory. So you'll notice here, um, the crucible has a hidden meaning. An allegory is a narrative story, which is similar in events, characters, and settings to another situation. Many people in the world are, uh, uh, are afraid that history will repeat itself. And during the 1950s, it was known, that the it was known as the Communist Red Scare. 
many of the characters and events that happened during this time period are similar to what happened during the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts in 1692. Arthur Miller, though, is trying to demonstrate uh, the similarities between a character named Abigail Williams and Senator Joseph McCarthy, who brought a lot of false accusations uh, against people and and claimed that they were communist. And, um, and so this particular uh, play in many respects um, was condemned and you can, um, you know, it did not go over well and McCarthyism, perhaps you've heard of that, uh, mm -hmm. was a time when you're looking under rocks for uh, communists that are infiltrating our, our country. So here's one thing that's actually saying something else. Here's another example of it. I don't know if you saw the movie MASH or if you watched the TV show MASH. Um, the film came out on January 25th, 1970. And it was a film released by 20th Century Fox that tried to put a modern spin on the problem of war. And so they created a film that was set in Korea uh, from 1950 to 1953, but the, uh, the subtle storylines in it were interpreted really as a critique on the Vietnam War. So one thing was being used as another. So if you go back and watch the TV show, MASH, um, it, it had a long run and you know, if people just kind of looked at it as a situational comedy, which it was, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, you had a lot of interesting characters from Klinger to Radar O'Reilly and all that type of thing. But if you see it as kind of a black comedy, which is a technical term of a parody or a satire or something that has a deeper meaning to it, if you went back and watched those episodes, you might be able to connect how they were actually criticizing the war in Vietnam. So mm -hmm. I use those two things as a way of just kind of saying, there's some of that that's going on in Genesis. And the Crucible and MASH are kind of commenting on the present day issue when it was uh, being shown. Uh, and it's clothed in a story from the past. In other words, it takes one thing and it pictures another. So keep that in the back of your mind because I think you're gonna see it. And I think once you see this in some of the things I'm gonna show you, you'll go, why couldn't I have seen that before? Why didn't I ever see that before? It, it you know, there's so many parallels here and uh, so I just wanted to say that as a preface. Do you have any uh, uh, questions or comments on that? Okay, so here are the seven considerations that um, uh, PDENS gives in this podcast. Uh, Adam's story is a preview of Israel's national story. The land promised to Abraham matches the borders during Solomon's reign. Abraham and Sarah's descendants are promised to be kings. Number four, Judah, the son of Jacob, is destined for kingship. Um, and again, remember, David comes from the tribe of Judah. Five, Genesis draws a political map also of Israel's neighbors. 
which is interesting. Number six, God's preference for the younger over the elder brother, especially Judah, is emphasized. And then there's this strange story about Judah and Tamar, which we I think we hinted at in a previous Bible study, but it does have a very real connection to the life of David as well. So what I did uh, this past week is I took those seven considerations, and what I did is I just wanted to add a little bit of material to it that will uh, be illustrative of each of the points. We already covered one of them last week. We talked about Adam's story being a preview of Israel in the parallels. And uh, you, in last week's handout, there was this chart. So I'm not gonna talk about that again tonight, but that was point number one in the podcast. Point number two, is that the land promised to Abraham matches the borders of Solomon's reign. Now, I don't know if you can really see this or not, but that same map that I showed you earlier, uh, if you were to draw a blue line around uh, the size of Solomon's reign, you would see here that it goes all the way down uh, to parts of Egypt and here's the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee. Of course, this is uh, the territory of Jesus in the New Testament. But you'll notice how far north uh, Solomon's reign also went. It goes all the way up to the Euphrates River uh, and all the way across here, uh, to almost going into Asia Minor over here. So um, in Genesis chapter 17... God promises to Abraham that he and Sarah will have a lineage that will then produce a line of kings, and they will have this territory. So if you have your Bible, let's turn open to Genesis chapter 17 for a moment. So if you, if you look at this uh, covenant, one of the things that um, is said at the beginning here is uh, when Abraham, verse one, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So you will become a nation. And um, then he uh, goes on and he says to Abraham in verse four, you will be the father of many nations, uh, which is interesting. Um, you are the father, not just of one nation, but of many nations. And uh, verse six, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. There it is. Kings, plural, will come from you. Now, who are those kings? Well, later in Israel's history, uh, the kings begin with Saul, David, and Solomon. And what you find is that this promise of a line of kings, as well as the promise of the territory that it is outlining, uh, this is back in chapter 15 of Genesis. Um, it says in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant 
with Abram and said to him, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of, now listen to all the different people groups, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the uh, Raphites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So already here in Genesis, there's the promise that there's going to be this lineage of kingship and they are going to somehow have an influence over all these different people groups here that is kind of shown in this map and it's kind of drawn by this blue line and I realize that's really small but um, at the same time all I want you to do is picture in your mind that the land that was is promised to Abraham the only time that matches up is the time of Solomon's reign and they're not big enough yet uh, in Genesis to to have influence over this territory and after they go into exile and come back they're small again they don't have influence over that territory either so it seems as though the focus of this is primarily during the reigns of David and Solomon, where it actually comes about. Does that make sense to everybody? So if Genesis is written later, it's looking back upon what has been accomplished in the reigns of David and Solomon. Remember, David is a man of war. He expands the territory um, quite, quite significantly. And uh, Solomon becomes so rich and so wise that other nations come to him often to seek out um, uh, his wisdom um, and his resources as well. Okay, have I left you behind anywhere? Does that make sense? In other words, the perspective here in Genesis is a later perspective that is actually known only during the times of David and Solomon. So when the writer of Genesis puts this specific information into the book, he does so uh, not prophetically in the sense that he is anticipating into the future, this is what's going to happen, but he is actually writing what did happen. Does that make sense? I don't know if I've lost you or not. <laughs> yeah have i lost you or do you care <laughs> okay what's that is that good or bad i don't know <laughs> okay all right well then we'll go on so abraham and sarah's descendants will be kings in this large geographical border that we just read now, you know what's interesting? This amount of territory that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 15 later becomes a political reality. Um, and this territory here that is described in the Abrahamic covenant is only mentioned one other place in the whole Old Testament. And guess where it's found? In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, and what is first kings about? Well, the kings of Israel. 
And this one in particular is about Solomon. I'll read it. Don't, you know, you don't need to turn there because I'm going to only be there a second. So in first Kings chapter four, verse 20 and 21, it says here, um, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So you see First Kings later confirms what uh, Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 17 have to say that there's going to be a lineage of kings and uh, this geographical territory is uh, something that in Genesis is portrayed as idyllic, but it's a reality in first Kings that uh, Solomon has all of this power and he has all this territory, and he has all these people paying tribute to him, which means he has great uh, military power to enforce that as well. So some scholars, and if you read that article that I sent to you, um, you'll find that it says basically, um, you know, this in many respects, and all that it took to get to that point, um, is something that is being looked back on rather than something that is kind of a nebulous uh, type of thing that is found in Genesis 15 and 17. It, it actually becomes something very specific uh, as the kingship develops. Okay, have I lost you? <laughs> okay, now don't get, don't get frustrated because you got to chew on this stuff a few different times and then you go, oh my gosh, I guess there are elements here in Genesis I've never seen before. And it might simply be because we might not know the history that comes later in the nation of Israel to be able to even make those connections. So before David, the Israelites did not have control over this territory. Um, and then after they come back from exile, uh, they don't have control over it either because most of the people did not come back into the land. So they just, um, they're very small and they're not as influential as they once were. But, um, okay. Number four. So in Genesis chapter 49, we're back in Genesis. Um, we find that there are blessings that are being pronounced upon uh, the 12 sons. And it's interesting what is said about Judah. So in chapter 49, it says, beginning in verse 1, Jacob called for his sons and said, gather so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. And then they are specified. Reuben, you're my firstborn. Um, 
uh, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went upon onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and you defiled them. So there's some history that's going on there where um, Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Um, so you're out. <laughs> then verse five, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and have hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. So Jacob has dismissed uh, three of his sons from getting the firstborn blessing. Okay, Reuben, you're out. Simeon, Levi, you're out. Then Judah. So Judah's the fourth in line, but he receives the highest praise. Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. And here we go. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And he will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, and his teeth will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter or his eyes rather will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What is that predicting? It's predicting, Judah, you're going to be the king. And the kingly scepter is not going to depart from you. And so what happens is Judah grows into a tribe that eventually produces David and Solomon. And uh, the, even the name of the southern nation after the division of the tribes is singled out to be Judah. And... Um, it is during that period of uh, the divided monarchy that we find that there is a lineage of kings that are all from the line of David, which is about 350 years. And of course, you have to sort through uh, first kings and second kings to get uh, that line of 20 kings uh, by name. But... Um, the last thing that's interesting as well is so the 10 tribes go into exile to Assyria. The two tribes of the south go into exile into Babylon. And the only tribe to survive the exile and come back into the land is Judah. And um, they will become the ones to assemble uh, what is known as our Old Testament. It is the tribe of Judah. And so um, it's fascinating that Jacob's dying words here is singling out his fourth son, which is going to lead us to uh, the younger having preference, preference over the older uh, sons, which is a theme all through Genesis. So here we find this idea of the Judah royalty and from the line of Judah will come 
the Davidic dynasty. And um, so all of that is right here in Genesis. Um, but, you know, it's looking back in many respects that you see how all of this has worked out. Um, any thoughts there? So a question, you know, is in terms of the, uh, you know, what the people of Judah are under David, what they, you know, what did they have to work from? In other words, what was the, what was the, you know, the, the stories of the old of Genesis, including Abraham and the fact that there were 12 sons and 12 tribes. I mean, is that, was that something that they had historically came passed down through the generations in terms of, of, of stories and they and then they have the history and then they kind of manipulated it to make themselves look like they were the they were the chosen ones or are or you know I'm trying I'm trying to understand um, yeah I, you're on it you're on it that what, what was it was they didn't, they didn't create the whole Old Testament from scratch no no no, no no so no so they, they but did they did they twist it a little bit to, in terms of making it clear that, that, that Judah was the chosen. Um, yeah, I, th I think you're on, I think you're yeah. on the right track. I think the political angle that is, is trying to be achieved here is sort of like an apologetic for the royal family. In my estimation, what I think part of what's happening here is Judah was singled out to produce kings, and you have David and Solomon. Then you have a succession of the Davidic dynasty until they went into exile. Maybe what is uh, these stories are trying to accomplish is when they are coming back into the land and they are going to try to rebuild their capital city. They're gonna to try to rebuild the walls. They're gonna to try to rebuild the temple. Well, who's gonna rule over them now. Of course, they're quite small, but this might be an apologetic. Many of these stories might have been compiled the way they are as an apologetic that we should still choose a king uh, from the family of David and Solomon. And um, it may maybe some of these stories have been compiled the way they have been compiled to get the support of the people because let's face it we have elections in our own country and if joe biden doesn't do a good job over the remainder of his um tenure as president well the natural reaction is going to be let's get him out of there and get somebody else in as president so if if after Solomon, the nation split apart, and that's because of heavy taxation, and then eventually they go into exile, well, why would you want to have a king from the family of David and Solomon again? You see what I'm saying? Why wouldn't we look to somebody else? Because that led to trouble. So it, what might be happening here, is that Genesis is, an, um, is a way of saying, this is what God uh, wanted all along. And that is 
from the uh, Abrahamic covenant, there's a territory that is selected. And then from Jacob's own words and his pronouncement of blessing on his 12 sons, it's Judah that is the chosen tribe that's going to be uh, uh, of kingly lineage. And of course, we just read in Genesis 15 that uh, Abraham and Sarah told as well, you will be a ruler of many nations and you will produce kings, plural, which is interesting. Um, so I think part of what's happening there is not that the, these stories are not made up. They're part of the oral tradition and the history of the nation, but how it's compiled. I think is serving a particular end uh, to try to establish the line of Judah going forward after the exile. If that and what, is, you know, what, is, what is the thinking in terms of at what point did, for example, you know, all the different stories and judges, which is a real hodgepodge kind of a, all the different things that happened to Israel. Yeah, it's very detailed. You know, so this 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 group takes over this, you know, the Benjamites and all what happened to yeah. them and how they were, that, that it, it gets very detailed in these stories. And then there's another one with Samson and Delilah, you know, that, that whole, yeah. wh where were those, wh when were those finally written and compiled? Were those, was that during Solomon's time or was it much later than that? Or when, that's you know, a, because there's a that's lot of a good question. That's a good question that I can't answer with specificity. Um, I think parts of them probably were a part of the, the ongoing history and lore of the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. When it was finally compiled, I would have to go back and kind of see what, what the common opinion is on that. But I think what's important to understand about judges is they're kind of a series of individuals that is uh, leading a, a more of a tribal type of nation. You don't really have uh, the idea of a kingship until Saul, David, and right. Solomon. So in one way, a judge is a political leader. Um, and, you know, and I guess that um, that's why we can understand why the ongoing theme in the book of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, uh, there is these tribes. So there's kind of this loose confederation, uh, but there's not this united monarchy until Saul. Of course, he has his own troubles. And, but David and Solomon are kind of like the, the height of it or the apex of it. So I, don't, I can't answer specifically when the book of Judge, Judges is completely compiled. However, I think a lot of these stories about these localized tribal leaders uh, that come out of the book of Judges probably were a part of the storyline for a long period of time because the book of Judges covers a pretty significant amount of time. I'm talking hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just like a small uh, time frame. And uh, so I'm sure those stories were handed down from one generation to another. When they are compiled, I don't know. And I think every individual story in the book of Judges probably has its own purpose. Why so much concentration on Samson and Delilah? Um, 
you know, why the detail about some of these judges that, um, quite frankly, were not models of virtue at all. Um, uh, so what is the purpose of that? And that's a, that's a good study that's a, to, to think about, but uh, I, I can't tell you exactly when it was finalized. Okay. Sorry okay. No, no, that's fine. That's what we're here for. That's great. Okay, we have a few more here. Uh, number five, Genesis uh, draws a political map of Israel's neighbors. Um, what's interesting is there are a couple of people groups that are mentioned in Genesis 19. So in Genesis chapter 19, this is an interesting um, interesting angle uh, in verses 30 through 38. Now this comes on the heel of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, beginning in verse 30, it says, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So uh, Lot has these two daughters. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom over all the earth. Let it, let's get our father uh, to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family lying through our father. So they're suggesting incest here as a way of getting pregnant. Uh, that night they got their father drunk and uh, the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it. She lay down and, uh, or uh, lay down or when she got up. And the next day, the older daughter does the same thing. And then you come down uh, and this is interesting here. Verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. So this is, these are both um, incestuous pregnancy. pregnancy. Then, it's, then what comes from them? Well, it come, uh, a particular line of people come from them. Verse 37, the older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites of today. So these two groups, the Ammonites and the Moabites, are two nations that are born from this incestuous uh, relationship that they have with their father. Uh, then there is one other group that we're told about uh, in Genesis chapter 36. If you go over there for a moment. So we have the Ammonites and the Moabites and the other significant group that is going to serve as a potential threat against uh, the Israelites is, um, is the product of uh, Esau and his descendants. So if you look at chapter 36, you'll see here one of the Toledotes. This is the account of Esau. And uh, that is, you see in parentheses, verse one, that is Edom. So you have here a listing of all these people that are the descendants of Esau. 
And by the time you get to verse 31, it says, these were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. So the Edomites had kings even before the Israelites had kings. And these three groups, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and uh, the Edomites are the group of people that Solomon had a pretty strong hold on. And um, what's interesting, at least uh, in regard to the Edomites, is we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 14 through 18, that they finally throw off uh, Solomon's uh, authority. And that was what was predicted back in Genesis chapter 27. So uh, go back to chapter 27. And what you find here is, um, you remember how Jacob uh, is deceived. Uh, uh, I mean, Isaac is deceived by Jacob. And, and so Jacob gets Isaac's blessing. So Esau comes in and he wants a blessing too. And, um, and Isaac says, well, I only have one uh, real blessing to give to you. And then you come down and finally Isaac gives a blessing to Esau. And here is the blessing that he gave. Take a look at verse uh, 30. Uh, it says here, after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And he said, my father, sit up and eat some of the game so that you may give me your blessing. His father, Isaac, asked him, who are you? I'm your son. He answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. And then Isaac cries, bitter cry, it says in verse 34, and he says, bless me too, my father. Bless me too. Now jump down to verse 39. Here's the blessing that he gives to Esau. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. And you will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. Okay, Jacob will produce Judah. Judah will produce David and Solomon. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Well, that's what 1 Kings 11 verses 14 through 18 tell us. Finally, the Edomites threw off the rule of Solomon and uh, thus fulfilling this, um, these words of Isaac. So the key question is, is Isaac speaking prophetically, not knowing anything in advance, or is the Genesis writer looking back on this and saying, this is, uh, this substantiates what has come about. And, and I guess maybe the purpose of this is to substantiate that uh, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites all rank below the Israelites. 
that the Israelites, because of Judah, are the most important. And therefore, again, this lineage should be continued of a king from the line of Judah. So it's interesting when you look back, you go, oh, maybe these stories are serving a greater purpose than just kind of some type of um, situational facts. Um, so again, you're going to have to chew on this stuff a little bit, but it is a different way of looking at the text. And when you look at it this way, you go, man, a lot of the details in the book of Genesis are given to us, just like just like Bud said about the book of Judges, why so much detail about these stories of the judges and stuff? And that becomes the key question, I think, for us is why is all this detail necessary if it's simply giving a historical situational account or is it, is it trying to accomplish something within the moment of history when it's finally compiled? So... Those are the kind of things that scholars wrestle with. And, you know, it's just, it's, you know, things that we don't think much about, but it might help to understand why some of the stories that you find in the books of the Bible are included, because there's a greater purpose to it than simply telling you what happened. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. All right, what time do we got here? It's almost eight o'clock. So we talked about this, I think, last week as well. God prefers the younger brother. So you, you, you see that God favors the younger brother in a lot of these stories. And the younger brother leapfrogs over the older brother who's supposed to get the blessing. And I've listed some of them for you there. Uh, Judah, while he's not the very youngest of the 12, he does leapfrog over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And we've already talked about this a moment ago. Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine. Simeon and Levi, the violence that they produced was when they massacred the Shechemites after uh, a Shechemite raped their sister Dinah. And so they go and they kill the Shechemites as an act of revenge, thus fulfilling the words again of Jacob of what Simeon and Levi do that they're uh, of their violence. So when these three are out of the way, then Judah rises to the top of the pecking order and Judah then becomes the one that produces another younger brother, David, who is the youngest of all his siblings. So we talked a little bit about that before. And finally, number seven. And we don't really have time to get into this in detail tonight. I could come back to this next week if you find this interesting. There is a story written in Exodus, Genesis 38 about Judah and Tamar that have a, a lot of parallels uh, with the life of David. And, um, and I just put this chart together and I'll put it into your handout for next week. It, it, it's just, it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like the story has repeated itself in the life of David. So why don't we do this? 
why don't we leave this last one to come back to next week? And uh, I'll, I'll look through this chart with you. Um, and then we'll have to ask the question, if Judah and David are being compared, and there's so many similarities between these stories, then what is the purpose of the story? What is it trying to do? And I think what it's, I'll give you a hint. I think what it's trying to do is to basically say, well, no one's perfect. We realize that David isn't perfect, but you need to look the other way. You see, this happens in politics thousands of years ago as well. So the story is kind of a way to let David off the hook for, uh, for raping Bathsheba and then killing Uriah, her husband. Um, so let's just kind of, we'll stop there tonight. We'll come back to this next week as just kind of a, just kind of a hinge before we get into some other things, because I think you'll find this interesting. It's amazing how parallel these two things are. So let me see if you have some questions or comments um, that we can talk about for a couple of minutes and then we'll finish off our time together. Is there anything that that you'd like to say or ask or? Aren't a lot of major politicians today trying to do the same thing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Bathsheba there. Yeah. Take a look. They're not so bad. They're not perfect. <laughs> well, but you see how that works. Those that are in power don't, do not want to relinquish their power. And even <laughs> though there might be accusations against them, they'll do everything they can to um, justify it or to downplay it. And I think that's what's going on in the, the Judah Tamar story and the David Bathsheba story. But we'll talk about that next week. But you're right. It's the same old song and dance that has happened for thousands of years. Others have any questions or comments? Okay, you're going to have to just kind of chew on this. Um, it's something that I think has some legitimacy to, uh, to how the book of Genesis reads. Um, we can take it as individual stories, but I think it's playing a bigger role than just that. So. Hang in there, okay? We'll move on and hopefully um, over the next few weeks, we'll kind of finish this. It's just, it's one of those things that, gosh, when you begin to follow the research trail, you've run across so many different things. You go, oh my goodness gracious. There's just, this is kind of like a rabbit hole almost that you could go down and it just leads you from one thing to another. It's almost like uh, searching on the internet, you know, how one thing leads to another, to another, to another, that type of thing. One of the things we've talked about a little bit before, I think, in Genesis was the, some of the challenges with the numbers. Yeah. Like the, the, the numbers of, of, you know, people who left Egypt, of, you know, of the, of the, uh, the, the migration. And, and, and also, you know, and, and Judges, again, 
there's a lot of numbers there. And it was interesting, you can go down the rabbit hole of, of uh, you know, kind of Googling and saying, well, they're really 60,000, you know, and of course, having done some history around this last year, even in my class, you know, the civilizations back then were not that large. I mean, it was, yeah. um, so there's a whole interesting dialogue you can, you can go into about the numbers of, you know, how, how large were the, the 12 tribes, you know, different points, you know, because, and then, and because in judges, they often talk about, you know, this, this, this army of 60,000, you know, wiped out this army of 30,000 and, Mm -hmm. And um, and then they're all they all have that those numbers all have to be in, you know exaggerated. I think that there and there are some different reasons for that, but I think the uh, the interesting thing is you know what are what would Jewish you know Hebrew scholars and Jewish scholars say about you know why why were those numbers left so large? In other words, what are, are there is are there reasons for that? You know, not in other words, even in the Book of Judges, which is an interesting compilation of different stories. You know what? What's what is the value? What what are the values behind those stories in terms of the the Jewish religion? You know what I'm saying? So they're 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 more than just stories, and it's more yeah. than I think it's more than history. Is there in Samson and Delilah? Well, what are the principles out of that story that that are, are of value to you know the Jewish community and you know and the Jewish people? You see what I'm saying? I, yeah. I think you could really dig deeply into a lot of these things like that, and and just. Just into the, I'm tempted to get into the numbers more because that's, I find that really interesting. Why, why are the numbers so, so large and, and really unreal practically, and yet they're still there? You know, they weren't, they weren't toned down or, or reduced or, or corrected, anything, yeah, yeah, historically. And, um, but, well, I think I'm, at the time of the writing, they were probably used as a, a political tool to intimidate their neighbors. You know, if you inflate numbers um, like that, one of the things that it can do is intimidate your enemy or potential enemy. Um, so in some ways, maybe to draw a parallel is when you think about even our own military and, and when you give an, an accounting of how many weapons we have, that type of thing, what role is it is that in publishing that to um, to other nations? Even it might serve as a deterrent. Oh, you know, we don't want to we don't want to go to war with them. That type of thing, and um, that might that might have some purpose in some of the inflation. Some of it might just be rounding up the numbers. Um, let's face it: when you have odd numbers that are counted who on earth uh stood on the battleground and counted each head like that you know so mm -hmm. there's 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 rounding up so if we say how many people were in church last sunday and we didn't count we'd say mm, about 25 that that type of thing too so you know that might not actually be accurate um but if I really wanted to impress a pastor colleague and, and I want, and they said, well, how many did you have in, in church last week? Hmm. I must have had, oh gosh, hard to say about 75. Well, that wasn't, <laughs> that's not true. But my motivation is to impress a colleague or whatever. So there's other reasons that 
numbers are not accurate. And, and I think you have to look at the context probably to figure out, is there a purpose why this is rounded up or exaggerated in this particular um, story? Mm. Um, that type of thing. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind tonight as far as some of that. Mm. I'm sure there's other, there's probably other dynamics too. Yeah, there are, they're, they're talked a lot. There's some interesting uh, articles, you know, on the, on, the net, on the web around that topic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we won't get into that tonight, but, no. um, but uh, I mean, these are all great observations. And, and I think that's all a part of trying to understand, you know, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And um, when we ask those questions, you, you know, we have to come, with, come to it with a clear eye. And yet with the assurance that God oversaw the, this material, and I think the bottom line of it is it's to help cultivate in us wisdom. And, um, and so, you know, even the stories that might not be historically accurate, it might be serving a literary uh, impact. So, you know, at the beginning of our Bible study, we said, hey, the crucible and mash, well, maybe I go back and I look at that play, or I look at that movie, or I look at that TV series, and I go, I never saw that before. It did really is taking a dig at certain things that maybe when I watched it the first time, I didn't see. But now that I'm older, or now that I'm wiser, maybe I can see some of those things that the author was trying to get at. So, all right, folks, thanks for your patience. This wasn't an easy study tonight, um, but I, I think it it's a, it provides an interesting angle on Genesis. So, okay, thank you. Well, thank you. All right, thank you're you. welcome. Have a right. great. Have a great rest of the week. If we don't see you Sunday, have a great 4th of July weekend. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Thanks.